Welcome everyone to this breakout session. I'm happy to see many of you here. Uh, and it's a very suitable topic, I think, for a virtual conference because we're talking about uh, digital equity. How will rapid digitization impact migrant and refugee inclusion? And of course, it's very fitting because we're not in person, of course, partially because of the pandemic. So we are bringing some of that digital innovation in practice today in our panel. Uh, I would first like to introduce uh, our panel of excellent speakers. We have with us today Imad El Abdallah, founder and CEO of Kidnovation and Hero to Be. Uh, where are you joining us from today, Imad? Hi, I'm joining you from Stockholm, Sweden. So we have someone from Stockholm, and how's the weather? <laughs> it's it's pretty good for autumn here. So yeah, so, uh, sounds like happy everyone has rain so except far. for Stockholm. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and then we also, uh, I would like to welcome Josephine Goop, co-founder and ex executive director of TechFugees for Impact. Where are you joining us from, Josephine? From Paris. From Paris. Great. Welcome. Great to have you here. And then last but not least, we have Mar Marco Campana, communications consultant supporting immigrant and refugee serving organizations with digital transformation. Uh, Marco, where are you joining us from today? Uh, I'm in Toronto, Canada. In Toronto, great. So we have a nice spread. <laughs> um, so before we get started, first a few housekeeping notes. Probably if you've been part of the rest of the conference, you already know, but I would quickly like to get through it. If you have any technical problems or issues, you can send a direct message in Zoom or chat uh, through the WUFA app to Andras Alfoldi from MPI Europe or email him at alfoldi at migrationpolicy.org. Um, he will be posting his email address in the chat box, so you will be able to just copy paste that. Um, we will have a Q&A at the end of the session. I would strongly encourage everyone to, as soon as questions come into your mind, feel free to post your questions in the chat box, either on Zoom or on the WUFA app, or uh, you're also able to uh, ask them in person. So we are, we are taking questions throughout the entire session. So just write them down. And if you would like to ask them in person, you can raise your hand uh, towards the end of the session. Uh, please note, we are recording this session. So everything will be recorded, including also the chat that will be viewable by all participants. Okay, so let's continue and dive into the interesting part. Um, before diving into the discussion further with our panelists, I would like to kind of set the scene for this session. And uh, even though we're all maybe a little bit tired of talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and having it part of our lives, it has been incredibly impactful. And especially when we consider digitization and refugee inclusion, the topic of this uh, panel. The COVID-19 physical distancing rules have disrupted traditional ways of both delivering integration services and community building. Digital transformation accelerated by the pandemic could trigger a new wave of innovation for refugee and migrant inclusion in diverse communities. For example, the leap to the virtual sphere may help make services more accessible and cost efficient, increasing the uptake of diverse populations in hard to reach locations. So a lot of potential benefits. Yet on the other hand, moving away from in-person instruction, interaction and support may risk excluding less digitally literate and connected households. This is particularly true for those that are disproportionately impacted by the digital divide, such as refugee women and girls. 
Moreover, online courses and formats may capture only a fraction of what in-person programming can achieve. And some components, such as fostering positive interaction that generate trust and reducing stereotypes, are harder to recreate online. In this session, we really hope to draw on lessons from recent pandemic responses and from earlier waves of tech enthusiasm around refugee inclusion. This session will also explore the conditions for equitable and inclusive digitization. Next to highlighting some concrete tools and initiatives, speakers will explore wider questions regarding the sustainability of these tools, uh, what works and why, and how the leap to the digital world may impact migrant and refugee inclusion in the longer term. So there's a lot to get to, and I think the topic of digitization already popped up in other sessions and in some of our plenary sessions as well, because this is kind of woven through uh, the response to the pandemic uh, when we discuss different subtopics. Uh, I would like to get started with Imad from Hero2B and Kitnovation. Uh, you have founded these two organizations, uh, two initiatives that aim to promote the well-being and mental health of refugee ch children through digital platforms and storytelling. What have been the advantages and limitations of using digital tools to deliver so psychosocial support? And especially because this is a type of classic in-person area of support. The floor is yours. Thanks for uh, the introduction. Uh, actually, the, the pandemic was, I mean, yeah, ironically, the pandemic was kind of positive uh, on our spread of impact. Because like uh, once we started this organization from the beginning, it was uh, digital. All the tools we wanted to, to create was like digital. And um, it's not just to follow the trends of what's digital in the world, but because it's like, it makes scalability way easier and measurability as well as measuring <laughs> impact all, uh, like all around the world. And during the pandemic, we, uh, we just needed to tweak our model a little bit from reaching out to schools to uh, and, and NGOs where we usually provide them with solutions to reaching out to uh, to actually to people at home directly and uh, just using the power of social media, which like uh, usually people uh, look like look down at if you look at organizations or big companies uh, like oh it's like like social media it's like where people just have fun no it's like it was a very very powerful tool for us to reach so many uh, families and all around Europe uh, just with a click of a button and uh, it made us scale our impact and that's how we won the UNFCR Innovation Award for 2020 under the pandemic. Oh, that's great. So here you're really showing the advantages actually of the pandemic and in growing the reach of your organization. That's really interesting to hear. Um, I'd like to move uh, to Josephine from the organization Techfugees for Impact. Uh, this organization uh, aims to nurture technology-based solutions for refugees and displaced persons and has developed specific programs to support the inclusion of refugee women in the tech industry. I'm very curious to hear more about what has worked in making tech solutions more equitable, uh, improving access for highly vulnerable groups for those lacking digital skills, equipment, or connectivity. Um, the floor is yours, Josie. Thank you. Um, so I, I, I'd like to bounce off Imad's idea that it was positive. I think uh, I, I feel like we work in the same with the same kind of mind. We 
we've built what we've built as programming um, all with digital tools so they could always be done online but we had always built all of this physically um, because the world was culturally socially um, more acceptant of having things done physical with some digital aspects and the reverse was not like culturally and socially acceptable yet before the covid so everything was there and when covid hit um, all of our programs could be just like done 100% online. We didn't have to change, though it had an impact on us. Um, so first, uh, let me just give you a bit of um, explanation on what we do. Um, so we do programs that are exclusively built for refugee women by refugee women in order for them to get back into employment. And we do this in Italy, Greece and France today. We're looking at ways to scale to other countries because we can technically do this but then there's also the human aspect that's not scalable and it's the most important thing so um from our programs when we were doing them physically to digitally in the uh, covid time lockdowns we saw that the increase a huge increase in the number of courses online done by the people on our programs um, they went further into their skill sets so that's a really good positive income and uh, some of the people that were far away from capitals that we would usually have to take a train to get to us uh, would have more time uh, to spend on getting those skills so it was a good thing the thing that didn't work out is the human aspect is the whole point of our program is for them to end up in a job at the end of it it's not so much the training and on that end because it's focused on mentoring the mentors would meet online the trust element the physicalness of trust and the fact that they couldn't meet that many people online that could get them job um, they could but it's not the same as meeting physically then just um, prevented us from achieving the good results we had previous years. From 80% of women getting onto jobs after our program, we ended up with 50% uh, at the end of 2020. So I think we have learned our lesson that the whole thing about training in our program is done digitally because this can be done there. But for the whole mentoring part, we've decided on to go for a mix where Part of it is done digitally and the more of it if they want to go further, but the first physical sessions of mentoring are happening, uh, the first sessions of mentoring are happening physically in a place and we're going to have check on every month because trust and a network of professionals starts here in the physical realm. Thank you very much, Josephine. Uh, Jasmine, our moderator, just had a problem with her computer, so I will be <laughs> taking over the moderation uh, for a little bit. Uh, so we can now turn over Marco. Um, Marco, so you have been part of uh, the Settlement Sector and Technology Task Group in Canada, which is a group that was tasked to analyze the needs of the refugee serving sector to transition to digital and hybrid service delivery models. So based on your findings, could you tell us what practical steps can civil society organizations and also public institutions take to better leverage technology in the fields of refugee inclusion? Definitely. Um, like Imad and Josephine, the pandemic created a unique experiment and opportunity for our sector when it came to technology, including the opportunity to conduct this research and do a sector consultation. 
So one of the things we found is that we don't need to uh, reinvent the technology or approaches or even inspiration. There are models within and outside of our sector. Uh, for example, I like to refer to NetHope, an organization that supports international humanitarian organizations in their digital transformation. And they created a model for the digital nonprofit that looks at six core areas, people, processes, technology, data, investment, and readiness. And when we look at their model in our specific context, some specifics emerge about where we are and where we should be focusing. So at the core, we need to work towards a seamless client experience journey uh, in settlement where newcomers can access services, information, and support regardless of the technology they're using. It also means creating a hybrid or blended service approach where clients don't lose out if they can't or don't want to access services using technology. And when we think about people in our sector, um, we're talking about professional development in our context, building a competencies framework for our work, including, including knowledge mobilization and transfer. When we're looking at processes, we're talking about digital data maturity and risk frameworks, um, frameworks that we can not only build on, but learn from, borrow, customize and implement in the sector. Uh, and technology in our case needs to be tempered with digital inclusion and equity. And this needs to align with our sector values of access, anti-oppression and inclusion. And uh, one of the things that was really clear during the pandemic is that the digital divide is very real among newcomers. At the same time, many are also using technology more and in different ways than the agencies serving them. And so when we're talking about readiness, this is where we're talking about those baselines in hybrid or blended service delivery, where we should have a common minimum standard or floor of infrastructure and competencies that no agency and no individual should fall below. And while we can certainly exceed those baselines and we should strive to, but at their core, we all uh, need to have access to be able to build those baselines. And when it comes to investment, I like to use what Alan Broadbent from the Maytree Foundation calls the three I's of immigrant integration, intentionality, instruments, and investments. So we need to be strategic. We need to be intentional about what we're doing. We need to have the right instruments, tactics, or technologies in order to address what we're being intentional about. And we need investments in those instruments and in that strategy in order to make it happen. And data is key to all of that. In, in this model, newcomers, our clients are at the center. Our work has to become even more client-centric, fully understanding our clients and communities in order to create that seamless client settlement journey. So the big pieces that our and other recent research shows are needed include uh, organizations, funders, clients, and communities coming together and working on this together. It's not a one-time or a short-term effort. It's about how we shift to either a new business as usual or a constant service transformation model. Um, these baseline competencies in technical and digital skills, as well as infrastructure for both sector actors and newcomers is essential. Knowledge mobiliz mobilization is increasingly more important where we're sharing and transferring within our sector, but also between sectors to learn from each other. And again, investment. And this includes investing in, in digital, both in core as well as in innovation funding. Thanks. Thank you so much, Marco. As all of you may have noticed, I was just experiencing some of the challenges that we've all experienced while moving online. So it was very fitting <laughs> during this panel while we're talking about both the challenges and opportunities of digital tools. Uh, I have unfortunately missed your contributions. Um, so definitely feel free to pick up on themes that were just discussed uh, later on if I uh, move to new questions for this session. Um, so more generally, I would like to pose a question to the entire panel, and I am wondering uh, 
what lessons can these recent innovations provide on how to advance migrant and refugee inclusion through digital services? So taking a broader perspective, of course, we're talking about COVID-19 and the pandemic, and we did not have in-person services, but how can we take what we've learned from using these tools? And at least I've heard from Josephine in the beginning and from Imad uh, during what, your, what you were sharing that it was a very big uh, opportunity and that your reach uh, got bigger, you were able to reach more people. Uh, so yeah, what are opportunities, but also maybe limitations moving forward more generally using these tools? And I invite any of you to uh, the floor, but maybe we could start with Imad. Yeah, uh, actually, there's, uh, as Josephine mentioned before, like the human aspect is a bit hard to replace because like a uh, in order for us to re to replace uh, like a human aspect with human presence with a digital presence, then we need like a high tech immersive experiences which haven't been developed so much yet and require like a high speed internet. So uh, then we what we wanted to compensate with was just like taking people uh, step by step. So we're reaching out to people through conferences first, like online conferences like this just like putting people in context of, of like what is happening and uh, the, 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 benef the benefits of uh, the time they can own during the, uh, the pandemic and uh, just simplifying the steps of like digitalization of, of uh, like uh, uh, if, you, if you want to talk about workshops or programs, educational programs, just like it making make things more simple and like other one, two, three steps. And um, yeah, so that was one of the, the, the challenges to, to, to go through. But like uh, overall, if we look at the digitalization, it's not about only scalability. We also talk about reachability, like reaching, we could reach schools in Lebanon and Turkey uh, while we're just here sitting in Stockholm. And uh, the fun part about it is if we look at scalability on the high level, uh, for example, if you want to support a program for school somewhere, and this program is not digital. Then you, I mean, the process you would take to, to, to make this program happen is by preparing the material and then print it and ship it and deliver it. And then you need to send uh, people to, to teach like tutor of tutors. And all of these high costs that like usually NGOs or like organizations that usually uh, do this work, uh, it's a high cost actually. And it's a, it's a it has like also like a, a bad impact on the planet also on the uh, environment. So so skipping all those costs and like transforming the way that people accept that now yeah we can you can take a digital course and maybe you don't need all the those books and all those papers to to sit and just like work with people. You can just have a one project or a one big screen and a computer and that's it. And people would enjoy the experience. So creating this type of new experiences that like really economically more and more scalable and uh, just by tweaking the language, just like just translating it into another language when we, we can reach whole another country without going all through all the old procedures of working with like big organizations and call for actions and proposals and the whole thing. So, uh, and that is actually one of the uh, aspects that uh, attracts the private sector actually, so it attracts companies. So if, once we would like to, try to to invite a company that we would like, uh, uh, would you support our program? 
and explaining the program to a company and trying to involve them in all, in all the um, steps that will be really hard to convince a company. But when you talk, talk to companies like, we're doing it digitally and your, uh, your team can be participating with us and we measure the impact digitally so you can visualize it. Like it's not only quantitative impact, but qualitative impact as well. So that will make like, made us also jump from a, from a win-win business model to a win-win-win business model where the private sector, the NGOs and the other NGOs and, and, and the beneficiaries are there. Uh, everybody is benefiting. So that's my take on the pandemic. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, I still would like to push you a little further, though, because I think you highlight very well all the different opportunities. And I think also the environmental costs that get reduced, uh, which is, of course, also an excellent uh, uh, side effect of this digital transformation. Uh, however, your organization really focuses on mental health, well-being, and then also for a particular group of children, especially. So uh, often to, to win children's trust, to be able to talk about these sometimes difficult issues, in-person services are really the classic way to go. Uh, I'm really curious to hear how this works online, how to do this digitally, and whether there are certain things that make that easier by doing that online and maybe some limitations that just cannot be overcome by doing this in a digital way. Actually doing it online is, is uh, uh, easier than doing it in, in person because online we have, you have one very important aspect that comes in between, which is like we work through hero characters, which, which means like we work through, uh, through a third persona so that both the teacher would trust, the, the, the coach would trust, and the kids would trust. And like, if we're moving to a more immersive experiences, like more uh, vivid pictures and captivating colors and figures, it doesn't matter if we're working with mental health or if we're working with education or if we're working with empowerment, like uh, this is how the internet works. And all this new generation, whether they have access to high tech, or a low tech, they are tech savvy, like they're tech savvy and like they're like people who, who, who are shifting their mindset from, 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 from getting the information just from a, a father figure or a mother figure or a teacher figure, which is physically to go like to be like uh, inspired by influencers and, uh, 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 and like uh, games and figures. So if we can, uh, if we can employ this, uh, type of figures in a way that we can provide them education and we, we turn the education into an edutainment, this is where we can reach the, the maximum impact. Excellent point. Yes, and it sounds like this is also something, this is not only during the pandemic, but for the long future to come, this is an incredibly useful tool to use. Um, so thank you so much, Imad. Uh, I'd like to uh, turn to Josephine. Uh, so based on your experiences, if you draw your lessons a little broader, what uh, are the uh, opportunities and also limitations to really use these tools more generally for refugee inclusion moving forward, also beyond the pandemic? I'll be very concrete on how it has impacted our organization. So um, we can draw lessons from this. So first, um, from that experience, there are things that are replicable and not replicable. Um, when you have a lockdown and you have to be at home with your kids because they can't go to school, it's a different thing from uh, following something online when your kids are at school, right? 
So I think the COVID experience is, is very specific and has other implication than just being online to follow courses or access things. Um, what we know is we've been able um, to create a new program that would be not only for refugee women, but for asylum seeking women so that they would be able to use all of the tools online uh, to get access to education as well as for their daily life. We would have never developed that program if the COVID had not happened because we, um, we developed it, we saw the need, the very need from those women and uh, because of the COVID situation. And also we wanted to build something that's not just related to employment, that's just to daily life and going about life. And so we could offer something uh, to asylum-seeking women because our program is dedicated to jobs and asylum-seeking women are not allowed to work. We don't want to give them false hope so they can't enter that other programs we do. So we created a new program uh, to empower them in their everyday life, not just in their job search. So this is a very concrete consequence of the COVID. The other thing, and Imad, we touched upon this before, but we didn't really change the way we were working. Um, we've always worked with online courses from Coursera and Open Classroom to provide to our, um, we call them fellows, the, the persons on our program. And it also always worked really nice. But what we really focus on with our program is to pay for the babysitters for the kids at home or not at home if they need to travel to go to us when in, in a no lockdown situation. The situation has enabled us to to, to, we were already doing the babysitting for those women, but the situation has enabled us to be very vocal about it, that this was really important. And for anyone who's had to work from home with kids, it's become a reality that this is necessary. So um, for us, it has that positive impact. Um, I'd like to also talk about social, uh, mental health because this is something that we also uh, tried to look after. It's not our expertise, but we had to uh, bring on experts on this. And so we had to rethink the way um, online you create a safe space and you make it comfortable. You're not in the room, so you're not having the senses of how people feel. In a room, you can feel from other uh, captors, not visual from uh, sensations, from hearing, from, and we had to develop this in other ways with specialists of um, psychosocial support. Uh, this was one of the limitations um, that we faced. Uh, and from our impact report, uh, that's on our website, and we do a report on our impact every year from independent reporters. Uh, what came out is they go online, they join the session, it's great, but then they close the computer and then they're alone again. And so that sense of disconnection connection can be quite uh, troublesome and can make them feel even more lonely. So um, this is a second limitation that I see. Um, that's why we went for like the uh, mix, uh, physical and uh, online courses for our program for this year. Uh, finally, on another limitation, and I said it uh, maybe before you went away <laughs> from disconnecting, is really the trust is built when humans meet because you get so much more information from the person in front of you. So um, that element, unless, as Imad said, the internet becomes more immersive, 
uh, and I don't know if I wish that, but maybe, um, then um, maybe we'll be able to create the same trust as in the physical world. Perfect. And of course, uh, moving forward, hopefully, of course, we're looking for lessons beyond the pandemic. We won't have some of these limitations anymore on meeting in person. So we can go to these more hybrid models and have the best of both worlds in some cases. Uh, so yeah, it's really great to learn and see what works and what are the challenges and to kind of optimize the use of all these different tools together in the most optimal way. Uh, Marco, would you still like to answer more about this question, looking more forward, more general about refugee inclusion? For sure. And, and, I, and in our sector, actually, we went through a lot of sudden changes. Uh, the entire sector moved, moved online, including those who were resisting digital transformation. So we're in a very different position in terms of um, being digital first, for example. And there have been a lot of lessons about what's possible and even desirable in digital services. And the consensus is, is, is becoming that it, uh, for us is that it's not to move to a completely digital model, but a, a hybrid or a blended model. And this is a, this is a big, big lesson for the sector. Um, also, I think um, talking or, or echoing what, what Dimad was mentioning, you know, the, there's been an emphasis on the role of digital tools uh, to augment and enhance rather than replace in-person information and services. Um, at the same time, we recognize, as I mentioned earlier, that digital skills and digital literacy training needs to be part of the settlement process for newcomers, both in pre-departure and post-arrival, so that they can access. And, and then our move as well to putting information in the channels where newcomers are. And again, that means learning more about what their preferences are, what technologies they're using, how they want to receive information, and making sure that we can meet them in those spaces. Um, it's also, uh, as part of this, one of the things that's that's always been an issue in our sector is the importance of service providers as information sources, including interacting with informal information providers, typically newcomers and networks of newcomers. But this has become even more clear during COVID misinformation and disinformation. And we've always known this about research when it comes to newcomer information practices, where they get their settlement information. But it's become even more clear as a lesson that authoritative and reliable information actors have a much more important role to play and a nuanced role to play in what is essentially becoming an increasingly decentralized, private, behind the password, digital and online space. Um, and as well, uh, some of the things that we've learned is our sector worked very collaboratively with our biggest funder, perhaps in a way that we've never really previously seen because we were all in this together. We were all pivoting at the same time and it has worked. There's been more trust in some cases um, and we need to be building on that, for example. And so part of that is constantly assessing digital channels, digital approaches available and what we can use and what should work and what can't work uh, and the choices uh, for, for newcomers, whether they're refugees, temporary residents, permanent residents, um, you know, family members, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so the other thing is for us, we also learned that the core of our sector is still the core, right? Um, Canadian Council for Refugees built uh, uh, 12 core values about 30 years ago that have nothing to do with technology. But when you look at, for example, TechFuji's eight guiding principles related to technology, they completely align, even though they were written decades apart. So when we look at, for example, we work with and not on displaced persons or newcomers. We're looking at technology as a tool, for example. Um, we're, you know, 
we need to look at sustainability. So flash in the pan apps, we've seen them come and go, including in our sector. And while we can learn from them, we need to be building more sustainable models that can be replicated and scaled across an entire sector, for example. And that includes building with newcomers themselves who are creating these models, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of preference. So instead of reinventing the wheel and saying, come to our app, come to our website, we will meet you on WhatsApp or Signal or wherever they are, for example, and ensuring that we have that sort of breadth of service possibility and service tool and literacy ourselves in order to ensure that we're not just building, but we're meeting people uh, in places where they are congregating and in the ways that they prefer to receive information. Um, and then becoming, once again, uh, making sure that the, the trust uh, piece is, is really clear. We have an authoritative ability to, to have trustworthy information, and that's a huge issue in the migration journey. Uh, but also uh, post-arrival as well. And so there's a big lesson there that is not a new lesson uh, around newcomer information practice, around trust, around misinformation, but it is uh, certainly one that has been, uh, has reminded us of the importance of all of that. Absolutely, and I very much like how you are pulling in this, uh, one of the topics that we were discussing in the plenary session, it's like how to involve migrants and refugees in creating these tools, working together, not just once asking, oh, what do you need? And then going, like taking the mic away. I think that was one quote that was used during the plenary session. So I'd like to pick up this topic maybe more uh, also with Josephine and Imad later, hearing how they work with uh, communities, how to, how to best involve and collaborate on creating these tools and making them so as useful as possible. Uh, actually, let's do that right away. Uh, I don't know, jo Josephine or Imad, have you had any experience with uh, collaboratively working uh, with the communities you work for, work with uh, to create these tools and making them as useful as possible. For sure, Simad. Want to go first, Imad? Or okay, you can go up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um. So the way we've built our programs, uh, I've always been um listening to the need and really uh, researching and listening to the need from the people that are facing it and seeing if we can actually resolve it or leave it to someone else. So uh, the first step is really to just um, not think in theory, but just really do your market research, uh, your research on the ground and talk to the people like a designer would do when building a product. Um, so that first, first, first step. And then the second thing uh, that we've done is really um, in the way we do our programming is to be equals um, and uh, to never be in a top-down organization where we say how it's going to, how it has to be done. And it's always a dialogue um, in everything, in every session, um, people can uh, participate and co-contribute to those sessions because it's all in this same philosophy as open source is we give a frame, we make it safe, and then people can uh, come in with their content. Now, as I said earlier, we have a report done, uh, impact report done by consultant, independent consultant every year that go on to asking every participant how they went through it, what's their experience, what's their feedback in an anonymous way. Um, and that builds a first feedback loop for us in the team. But we also um, have the communities come to our office and provide us feedback as groups onto how we vote on the measures from all the feedback we've gathered. They vote on like what we should implement, where we go ahead next. 
And finally, I think um, this to close the loop is um, it wouldn't be possible for us to do the work we do if in the in the people on our team, none of us would have gone through those experiences. So the person who's managing the whole programming at a, at our office is herself uh, a refugee woman. But on top of this, she's done programming on the ground before and she has gone through a programming. So she has like all of this like hats that she can play on. And I think this is where, uh, this is what is the most important is that your team needs to reflect genuinely uh, the work that you do, um, having had the experience of the people that you're trying to help. Uh, and we've built also an alumni group that some of them are part of our uh, advisory board. So I think it's about getting, creating those places where people can um, come in and give you information, feedback loops in different ways. Thank you so much. And how about in your organization, Imad? Is there any form of consultation collaboratively developing these tools? Yeah, definitely. Like, first of all, in our organization, it's a bit different because uh, myself, I'm a refugee. I came on a rubber boat to Europe. So uh, building this organization is something personal and based on personal experiences. And if we look at innovation, like the mother of innovation is necessity. And if you would like to reach the best results in anything, even in engineering, in companies, like in any tech or not tech uh, solution around the world, it's, it's always proven through history that like the most like uh, solutions that, 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 that live the most are the ones who are combined between a skill and a vulnerability. Someone who understands the necessity of, of how to implement a solution into person's life, somebody who belongs to the target group, and someone who knows how to implement a skill over this vulnerability. So you can you know, merge them together to create a solution that's not only um, functional, but also serves, uh, uh, serves uh, uh, for, for a purpose uh, for the target group and it's scalable. scalable. So for us from the beginning, uh, even though uh, like we collaborate with scientific institutions, uh, with universities to get the best science from there. For us, building the stories and building uh, the core of the product is always with the target group. And actually 50% of the people in our organization are, have refugee background. And the, the reason to do it was not, to, was not just like, okay, let's do inclusion. No, it was just, it, it's a necessity for a product to function. Uh, if we if we build the best Mercedes in, in Germany and we wanted to work in South Africa, if we don't include experts from South Africa who understand the terrain, this Mercedes would never work there. So so it's about combining both things together that brings the best results. Absolutely, and I think it's very good that it's described in a very self-evident way, of course. I mean, why is it even a question? But maybe more specifically, because if you are targeting children and maybe these children are located, you were mentioning also in, I think you were mentioning Lebanon uh, and people with, with, with mental health issues. It's how do you uh, 
fit your program to this particular group and involve the group in shaping the tool because of course you're located in Stockholm you're far away you have maybe less direct contact with these groups so uh, maybe not from a generic or general people with refugee mi migration background but more uh, specifically the, the, the children uh, uh, that are using your tool and how you involve them and use their uh, yeah, what they need and their ideas about what is helpful into creating and changing your tool. Was it was it that question? Okay, uh, the, the answer Sorry, to the yeah. question is actually actually we did a, we did a mistake. Uh, we uh, we learned this the hard way. It's like okay, first create this program for we try to implement all the aspects all the challenges that the refugee kid would go through and going over the sea like seeing the war going through all those challenges and they're like we wanted to scale it up into all countries and they're like wait we fell into the this trap that's like okay kids in lebanon or turkey they they haven't experienced what the kid who moved to europe has gone through and it's a totally different story. And the struggle, if you look at the Maslow pyramid of everybody where they are on their Maslow pyramid on, on their like human needs, they're on different needs right now. So the way they would perceive information is completely different. So uh, right now we're uh, trying to build a program uh, in neighboring countries, Jordan and Lebanon. And um, we, the way we want to restructure the stories is like based on real stories from people who are uh, like uh, from kids there uh, who are there and from teachers and NGO workers who who, who are conducting those uh, uh, those experiences there so we can build something that goes and go into people's hearts because that's what we try to do we try to just reach a person try to make them open and and, and to be vulnerable and this is the first way we can make them open to perceive uh, a tool to help them to reach healing and yeah as you as you as you mentioned it's different experiences we learned this the hard way i did the mistake but yeah we learned no and i think, I you're think the whole point sorry yeah i think the whole point is to learn how to fail um in a way that doesn't hurt the people you help because you will hear in the tech sector fail fast but fail fast at what cost because in the development sector it's about no harm so do no harm doesn't work with like fail fast break things and fail fast so it's about taking risks that are protecting people but also failing fast still because um you will fail so it's just about getting used to failing in a way that is not harming the people you help I just want to add to that because I think when we talk about, we hear innovation a lot as disruptive innovation. And, and there's a number of issues exactly along those lines. Just the people who tend to get disrupted are the people who tend to always get disrupted. They're vulnerable, they're, they're, they're whatever, however we define that. And so I've heard terms like constructive innovation, which talks about building on, um, and you're still innovating. You're at, at its core, you're working with the people you're serving, but you're not trying to destroy something. You're trying to figure out how to make it better. Um, and iteration as well, instead of innovation, this constant need to destroy and rebuild um, instead of learning and incrementally increasing. Now, all on the landscape, we can do all of those things. But I think as Josephine is talking about the in, in the in the sort of funded sector, uh, agencies tend to not have the, the it's a resource question. Am I going to innovate and something might not work or am I going to use those dollars to serve the people with something that I know mostly works? Right. And so 
they might iterate, they might innovate, but it's too risky and there's not enough of, a, of an investment to be able to do both at the same time, or they don't have, they've never built up the capacity and the competencies to be able to do both at the same time. Now that is changing. We have examples in our sector, but they're very piecemeal. They're very specific to very large organizations that, for example, can uh, uh, you know, get corporate funding to create an innovation lab, for example, which is a core set of people who are not tasked to deliver services. Most of the innovation iteration that happens in organizations is done on the side of the desk, right? And we hear this constantly. They're innovating, they're doing things because they have to, because their clients are asking them to. You know, part of what we learned um, pre-pandemic, but also during the pandemic, is that people are using their own devices to serve clients. They're using their own phones. Huge privacy, security, client boundary issues. Um, huge issues when uh, we have a large turnover of staff in the sector. So they leave with their personal device. Well, what happens to the person who comes in? How can they serve those clients? So those 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 are huge issues that that uh, that have up till now been an either or con kind of conversation in formal institutional settings that are top more top down than perhaps the more nimble kinds of startup organizations. And that's one of the lessons that we've learned is that we need a both and approach. We need to be able to both be innovating and iterating at the same time that we're we're serving people and recognizing that we're not serving everyone at the same time and in the right ways. So it's 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 a constant struggle though to kind of decide well if we have finite dollars do we put them into something that might break or something that we know at least serves 80% of the people we're serving adequately and doesn't break them at least, right? So those are those are big challenges that are ongoing. I really enjoy here uh, how uh, all of you here are reflecting on some principles that we know more from the tech industry and more like from the development world and how uh, how they intersect and create something new. Uh, and uh, I think also maybe, Imad, what you were kind of pointing at, I think, there is not unlimited resources. So I guess you, if you want to scale up, you want as many people to profit from the wonderful tools that you're creating, but then to make it fit and, and with everyone's very specific needs that of course requires a lot of resource. So I guess just this iterative approach is, sounds like a, a um, important way to go and learning from this and still this no harm principle. Uh, so I think this is really interesting. Um, there's one other point I think that's really, or a bigger question I think that is important to discuss. I think I alluded to it in the introduction of this session and that is kind of talking about digital literacy and maybe gaps in access to digital tools. And that it's, of course there's increasing digital literacy, increased access, but still there is a gap. Um, and some moving some of these services online could maybe exacerbate inequalities because some people don't have access to digital tools. So I'm very curious to hear a little bit about how your organizations deal with that and uh, if you have ideas about how to tackle this and maybe just for the audience and maybe for all of you who are present, I think yesterday during our session on where challenges intersect, it was mostly on vulnerable groups. Lama Jagjuga, she uh, was telling about how her organization here in Belgium was never involved, but was currently giving uh, digital literacy courses for migrant women in Belgium and how they provided that through WhatsApp or through other channels because it couldn't be in person and how they were making, there was a, a laptop lending library, et cetera. So how they were kind of working on this. Uh, so I'm very, so if anyone is interested, everything is recorded so you can look this back up. But for now, I'm very curious how your organizations, now you work on this, but also your general ideas on how to tackle this issue um, feel free to take the floor, anyone who is. I'll take it. Josephine, um, go ahead. So it's been on our list of things from day one, knowing that uh, most uh, uh, people that are refugees will have a smartphone, but not the 
tele like computer and all of this. So it's been on our radar from day one to collect computers from uh, companies that are partnering with us, as well as buy computers if we can find money and donations, enough donations to buy computers and lend them, as well as Wi-Fi boxes. So I think it has not changed for us. We were already lending computers, um, providing Wi-Fi thanks to partners from Cisco to uh, Wi-Fi Bienvenue. It's the volume at which we had to um, the volume at which we had to play was bigger than usual, and we had to ship them because before the person would come to the office or would come to a co-working space where the play the, the, the computer in the Wi-Fi boxes was delivered. Now we had to ship them individually into houses, which was the difficult part is the logistics of this. But this is how we dealt with it. Um, and, uh, and we were in a lucky situation having partners all around providing the material. I think um, you raised asked, a really oh, good, sorry, yeah. so you raised a really good point, Josephine, at the end about uh, you were suddenly in a, in a different line of business, right? Um, you're, 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 you're doing logistics, you're doing distribution of computers and, and that for us is, is something that came up around the digital divide as well as equity and inclusion issues is that there are nuances in this. And so a computer lending solution can can both solve and create equity issues if some organizations are more capable or, or competent and it also go, creates a new line of business that agencies have not worked on before and again takes away precious resources from service delivery and frontline in particular in a digital only pandemic space where you were working with clients who weren't necessarily digital those interactions took much longer because they tended to happen over the phone you know speaking and things like that for those who may have a landline and so all of a sudden you're once again torn into these digital equity issues of you're trying to solve an equity problem but you may be creating other ones in inadvertently. Um, and so we saw investments in some cases, but but again, not a baseline, right? We, I, I keep coming in our, in our work, it keeps coming back to baseline. So if you're a single, uh, if you're an agency with one worker or an agency with 500, you all need to have a similar kind of baseline of competencies in order to provide certain kinds of services. Um, and so again, what we've learned is that the, uh, as part of that equity, digital services are just part of a continuum of services. Um, they're not for everyone. Um, and, but their, their you know, choice and accessibility are really key through that. Um, but they tend to be for more than we expect them to be, but in different ways. So Josephine once again alluded to the phone, right? Many agencies are used to desktop and laptops. They even have websites that are still not mobile friendly. That's an equity issue. If you're trying to provide information to someone and you're saying, what's your email address? And all they can offer you is a WhatsApp connection and you don't have the ability to serve them in that way. That's, that's a disconnect in, in the ability to do that. So that whole continuum and figuring out not only the digital literacy and the devices for, for newcomers, but also those who are trying to work with them and serve them um, is, is a flip side of that continuum. Actually, I have a bit of a follow-up question now. We're talking about this access to digital tools, not only for the people that are being served, but also the people that are providing the services. Because we received a wonderful question from the audience about uh, many of these organizations, civil society organizations, depend heavily on volunteers. And uh, they were describing that often volunteers at times are often older or maybe not as digitally inclined. Uh, so how do you deal with this within your organizations uh, while relying on volunteers that may not be so great or uh, flexible with using digital tools? 
I can give an example in, in our research in the sector that that happened in particular around um, ESL conversational circles where typically it would be a person would sit in a library or a cafe with another person and and their 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 volunteers were typically older and it, it was training they were able to do it they were able to do it using WhatsApp and Zoom. WhatsApp because that was what the clients they worked with were using and they figured that out and Zoom eventually because it just was an easier tool to do each and so they had to then train both the the, the client the newcomer as well as the uh, the uh, the volunteer and support them and that creates once again an entire level of of competency and capability in the organization but they committed to that their funder understood that the pivot was necessary and supported them in that so it is it is possible but it takes time and it takes training it's all about those competencies once again. Um, but that's the kind of thing that there's a learning curve to it and, and you have to be able to get on that and then bring people in. And not all of those volunteers are going to stay. You'll get new volunteers sometimes and not all of those clients are going to stay. Uh, we heard in many cases, they're just waiting when the in-person can happen again. And, and that is problematic obviously for their settlement journey because it slows things down for them, right? So, uh, but it's certainly not going to be for everyone. So then again, we also had people who were literally delivering packages of materials and then over the phone, they would be going over the materials. So, I mean, organizations are very resilient with this kind of stuff, but it takes time. They'll figure out solutions, but all of them are, are high, high resource intensive solutions, even if technology is involved. Yeah, and it's really interesting that so both need to be trained, both the volunteers, the people providing the service and the people receiving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so digital literacy is an issue uh, across the board. Uh, Imad, would you still like to comment how this was in your organization, if you have experience with this? Yeah. In our organization, we actually try, as we try to go as digital as possible, so we try to avoid working with, uh, like, depending on volunteers. So, um, like our policy to work with to make the programs that we make as user friendly as possible, as simple as possible, like uh, trying as much as we can to to to, to reach one click uh, uh, policy. It's like one you click on one link and then you have everything ready. Uh, of course, there are challenges to to, to reach that level. Uh, and the second thing is like we try to make those tools available first for teachers or uh, like NGO um, uh, uh, like workshop conductors uh, or at home for those people who, who, who would use them you, they would be provided with a simple course uh, through a video call of how you can use uh, these uh, these tools so uh, yeah we try to skip using uh, 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 like the skills of, uh, or depending on the skills of uh, uh, of volunteers, and we try just to make things as simple as possible. But it doesn't mean that this should function for all types of organizations, because um, as a, as I meant, as I said from the beginning, we try to go more as digital as possible from from our end. But there are so many uh, uh, organizations that that the way they deliver their work, it's uh, it's kind of impossible just to go on the digital. Okay, great. I see that we have multiple questions from the audience also, especially about this digital literacy uh, point. Uh, there seems to be a lot of interest in here. And I want to bundle two questions. So one question is about how if people 
have limited digital uh, literacy or they have to use these digital tools, but there's also a language barrier. So how do you combine those? So how do you help people cross this digital divide uh, if they have not acquired the language yet? And are there special tools for this? And then there was also another question that was asking more about what are really the required digital uh, skills or what literacy is required uh, and essential to be able to operate in the digital world or to use your tools. Um, so yeah, what are now the essential skills to have? And I would like to give the floor to Marco, I guess, as you seem ready to answer. There sure. you go. Yeah, I mean, this, this came out in our research as well. And there's a couple of things that the, the digital tools actually can help with the language barrier in many cases. WhatsApp was always used as a really good example and not just language, but literacy barriers. So we work with, with refugees sometimes who are not literate in their own language or in English. And so the, the, the uh, audio and video functions of WhatsApp, for example, or other messaging, digital messaging tools become really important where you can either just have a call or you can send audio or send video in order to, to make it useful. And again, that came up really strongly during COVID where material might be translated, but it's not accessible for, for certain audiences who have literacy issues. So settlement agencies are able to, um, because again, they've got staff who speak those languages, to, to, re, to kind of um, go over that divide in some ways. And the technology can be very helpful in those cases. The other question um, in the chat, which is really good, digital literacy is really the, I think a lot of folks kind of define it as the how-to, I can use this technology, right? If you look at digital literacy training, it's how to move a mouse, how to open a smartphone, how to send an email, things like that. But what we've seen as well is the need for digital fluency and digital citizenship, which go beyond, which is critical thinking, which is uh, how to uh, understand and address information and misinformation and things like that, and, and sourcing of that information. So digital fluency and literacy or are, are, uh, citizenship become really important, not just for the basics of being able to say um, work or communicate in, in the new country that you're in, but also uh, if government is moving online, if um, citizenship and democracy are moving more and more to online expressions, how do you ensure that someone moves beyond just basic digital literacy and is able to, to move into those spaces? And then you've got the bottom of the, the iceberg, which includes language, which includes socioeconomic status, which does include access to devices, right? So we can see in Canada, for example, you could say a household doesn't have a digital divide because they've got a device and they've got bandwidth. But if that device and bandwidth is only the, the kid who's going to school using it or one of the parents and no one else in the family has access to it, there's still a digital divide and a nuance in that family. And so we don't have full digital literacy or, or fluency. So it's, it's expanded beyond literacy into what is digital mean in settlement and inclusion in the pro, in a long-term process. It has to go beyond basic ability to, to, to function with the tools. And, uh, and include um, how you're actually assessing information online and those kinds of things as well. Thank you, Marco. Uh, I want to compliment um, your, your, what you say with practicals. Like, I think we're going to be very practical on my end. Um, if I'm going to answer that question, <laughs> how to use the internet to make research and find information is one key. For a lot of uh, people we help in our populations, um, people with refugee status, but not all, um, it's a bit thinking of outside of Facebook and WhatsApp when we think of the internet. I think it's for the one that are the most remote to digital literacy. It's just getting them out of Facebook and, and WhatsApp and understanding that they can browse outside of that scope is the one important skill we give them. The other is how to use Zoom and other online visit video conference tool. So it's about like 
how do I change my name on Zoom? How do I use uh, my screen, sharing my screen, uh, and all of the options that those video conference tools, because uh, to put it in context, our women are going to interact with employers or people they need online, and they need to be very like able to function around that space. Uh, another skill we really look at um, deepening into our programming is the working online environment. So uh, it can be using um, the Gmail environment for inbox and receiving documents, working with documents, collaboratively with others and all of this. So, but it could be on another provider of online documents. It doesn't need to be Google, but it's really understanding that you can work online, collaborate online and how to use those tools that are quite intuitive. It still is a skill that's so valuable for someone who wants to work and get, a, get to work in the tech environment, especially. And one last thing that we do a lot to make them aware, and I don't know if it's a digital skills, but to be aware of their social footprint and how they are tracked online. So that um, a lot of the people we um, support, uh, well, they are refugees. So um, there will be an element of ways they've been persecuted or not uh, directly or indirectly. And so to be very uh, careful when using online tools, so not to put into personal data, personal information, have it online. So there's an element of making them aware that whatever they upload on the internet can be found. And so to manage um, properly their social media. And a lot of them will say, I don't want to use Facebook. Uh, it's a horrible place for me. Um, and they're sometimes more aware than most of us who are so naive about using social media. Great, thank you so much. Um, I, I just want to add on that. Um, one of the things that came up in our conversation and with the sector is the, the interest in creating almost a test to, to, to see someone's digital literacy benchmarks. For example, in Canada, we have the Canadian uh, language benchmarks. So someone goes through an assessment and at the end, you're, you're a CLB level three and everybody in the sector understands more or less where they are with reading, writing and comprehension. And, and part of the problem in the sector is Again, they're not equipped and don't have the, the capability to, to assess someone's digital literacy and then to be able to understand with them. They may be a CLB3, but a DLB8. They may be very, very advanced when it comes to tech. And we find that a lot in refugee and newcomer communities. They're using technology in big ways, but their English may not be uh, very high. So the, the, the assumption there is, well, then they just, they probably don't understand tech because they only have that one kind of assessment level. So the idea of creating some way for agencies to quickly be able to understand, okay, this is a person who might be interested in our online services uh, versus someone who may only want to, to come in person, for example, and having some sort of a benchmark that they can use to, to understand better where people are at. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I would still, I would like to transition the, the discussion a little bit more forward looking as well. I think we have so many rich points also about digital literacy, really refining and enriching the concept that is so much more than just knowing how to click. Uh, there's a much broader understanding of it with different components and how you work with that in your organizations. Um, looking a little bit more forward, uh, we have some excellent examples here of really great tools. I mean, you, you received the UNHCR uh, award, Imad, with your organization. Um, but there's been a lot of, we call that uh, enthusiasm in, in tech, different little apps, websites, tools that are being launched. It, was, it happened in 2015. It happens again now during uh, COVID. Uh, many of them really wonderful tools, uh, but some uh, 
at some point get abandoned a little bit and are not continued or are not sustainable in the long run? What can we do to make sure that we have tools that are sustainable and that will stay alive and will contribute not only during an emergency, but for the long haul? Uh, I'm, I can imagine, Imad, you may have thought about this. Uh, <laughs> the answer is very simple. It's just to include the uh, target group with the making, with the innovation, like they should be co-creators, not beneficiaries. Once those people that need a solution are co-creators, they are like involved, not just consulted, but they are like part of the creative creative team, the creation team of any tool, you will guarantee that this tool will live forward because you will understand that like you're making the right tool to fit in the right place. And this is how the wheel will turn. Otherwise we would like, we would be just throwing punches in the air, just wasting money and time, just like making perfect solutions that work nowhere. So <laughs> involving the target group in the making of any solution is the key for a solution to be sustainable. An excellent point and also really beautifully ties into what we were discussing earlier and how to do that, how to involve these groups. Uh, so that's a really great point. Uh, I think uh, Andras is linking a report that MPI, uh, some colleagues of mine have written about this kind of enthusiasm in digital tools, but then that they kind of end on, on kind of a junkyard of some of the apps. Uh, many others do continue. And I think it's also maybe those that do continue are the ones that are that work well, that are being used, but also sometimes it's about resources. Of course, it's not only about how useful they are. Oftentimes it's about having the resources to continue to update, to, to work on it. Uh, Marco, I see you would like to add something. Yeah, I think part of this, um, it, it also requires the literacy amongst organizations that fund institutions like our settlement organizations, because the what's cool today, apps are cool, apps seem seamless, apps seem like the way to go. And it's really hard to resist funding that kind of thing without really uh, ensuring that what EMAD is talking about is happening at, at the ground level. So there's, there's a combination, right? We see people who wanna create apps because they wanna be helpful. We see people who wanna create apps because they wanna sell them eventually to a bigger tech bro. Uh, and then we see people who, um, who, who go to a funder and say, we can solve everyone's problem if we just have a million dollars to create this app. Um, without without any kind of semblance of the kind of research about, well, is that what people want? Have, where, where is your research on that? The sexy, the bling, the new tools um, are still big issues. It's In our sector, it's similar. Everyone has to be on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, but is that where the newcomers are, for example? But you've got to have those three icons on the top of your website, or maybe there's you're not, you're not with it kind of thing. So it's really also making sure that the literacy at the level of either corporate donors, of, of startups, of businesses, as well as government funders and other philanthropists, that they're aware of what they're funding and what they should be asking for. And that itself is a literacy curve that we are, again, in our report and in our work, working to try to make sure that we're aligned. Um, you know, as digital government goes forward, they tend to have a lot of the principles and values that, for example, align with TechFugee's eight guiding principles and would align with, you know, um, user design models and things like that. But then they seem to forget those when they're funding or they haven't infused across their own organizations yet. Um, so when they're funding organizations or the new next cool thing, 
you know, um, it risks uh, leaving people behind. So we had a self-funded, um, a really interesting homeless app in Toronto recently that used, um, you know, conversational chat and connected with a local 211 service, so authoritative information and referral, um, and got, and they started building out into other cities, and then they've, they've since abandoned the project. Um, and so in theory, they open source the code, but no, settle, no settlement organization has the capacity to come in and build on that code. So if there were homeless people who were being served by that product, um, are they now left in a lurch? And that again is that problem of vulnerability. That if if it's not if it's not necessarily going to have legs or be sustainable, um, it can do more harm than good over the long term. And the partners that it needs to bring along aren't necessarily just the end users, but the other collaborative partners. In this case, homeless serving organizations that could have taken it over if they saw value in how it could complement parts of their service and work. That's an excellent point here also of the, the responsibility of funders. And I actually, uh, if you look at a lot of funding calls, and I think there's probably other representatives of civil society organizations or grassroots organizations here, part of this call in the audience, uh, that sometimes they really, they're really excited about tech and they want it to be like part of the call for funding. It has to have something to do with data science or something flashy or an app. And I think, yeah, of course they're wonderful tools. And I think we've, we've all discussed that, but that is very much about like the goal you're trying to achieve and uh, aligning them and that oftentimes it is a great tool but it should not be just used just because it's a flashy uh, way to do it and there's some responsibility here on the funder uh, funding end as well uh, so it's a really interesting point you're making um, I see another interesting question I'm not sure if any of our panelists are able to talk to this, but I will pose it uh, to all of you. We received a question about the if there's been any success with using blockchain in immigrant and refugee settlement processes, so ID cards, financial services, etc. So I don't know if any of you have heard of this or are familiar with this. I'm looking around. Heard of it? Yes. Familiar enough to speak to it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. Okay, so that's uh, our Yeah, this is the, so that is maybe left for maybe another conference or another conversation. Um, we have a little bit of time left, so I would definitely encourage you to, if you still have things you would like to share or maybe promote, maybe you have new work coming out, uh, definitely feel free to pitch it to the audience. Uh, I heard something about an interesting report, Marco. Oh, there, there's a couple of interesting, like we worked on a report, there's also a couple of interesting reports that came out, one um, specifically related to digital inclusion of refugees resettling, where government assisted refugees were consulted with to look at their use of technology and how it could fit into the continuum of information and service uh, providing pre-arrival. Um, and a lot of what we talked about is here, for example, that we can there there is a role for digital tools to augment and enhance, but not replace in person. So it's that it's that both and kind of approach, and that is really the consistency that we hear a lot. And another is um, innovation and uh, a report about innovation in the sector that looked beyond technology and. What comes up there is, again, a lot of the nuances we've been speaking about. So there are regional and local nuances to not just service provision, but to the newcomers coming in. Um, so, for example, in our continuum of tools, you know, if you're serving someone from China, you're, you, if you're not on WeChat, then are you really serving them? And if you're serving someone from, you know, a place where it's WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, that's most popular, understanding those not just broad trends, but the very specific trends of the people that you're working with. Um, but also the innovation um, that comes out of resilience and a lack of funding is something that our sector is, it look, is looked at in that report as well. 
So these these are all they, they all align with each other. And what, what's interesting is that they're not new. But there's um uh, we created a chronology of 20 years of research in this area. You know, it's it's become the hot topic, but these are not new conversations we're having either. And I think that's something that's really important. You know, there's a rich history of, of um, research into newcomer information practice, into the use of technology as both a tool as well as an information source, newcomer information practices. Uh, and I think we need to we need to look back as well to see what are the themes that have never been addressed um, that we need to start addressing now, because they kind of crop up every five years or so, at least in the Canadian context around some of these these issues. Um, but we're at a different point now where we might be able to act on them. Yeah, I would also definitely encourage you to share those reports in the chat so everyone can have a look at them and uh, learn from uh, the findings. It's always really helpful. So anyone else in the audience, of course, if you have uh, interesting articles or uh, tools to share, if you yourself have created a tool, uh, feel free to share it. And I think it's really interesting to learn from each other and see what we do uh, and uh, network. Uh, and speaking about that, I think uh, we have to slowly wrap up this session. Uh, and I would really like to thank our speakers. Uh, I think uh, they're incredibly knowledgeable and have shared a lot with us to understand this issue. We talked a lot about digital literacy and the complexity of this, what the digital literacy actually means in this digital divide, and also talked about ways to reduce this digital divide. Um, we talked about all the different stakeholders that are important when we talk about using digitization. So it's involving migrant and refugee communities, involving people while creating the tools, but also the responsibility of funders and how they allocate their funding money and uh, looking at these tools. Um, and uh, also we looked a little bit forward, like not only at the impact of the pandemic, but also how can, what can we learn uh, from the pandemic moving forward. And I think we'll only see a further increase or uh, in, in the use of digital tools. And it can lead to a lot of cost efficiency and a bigger reach. And we saw a lot of advantages and po positive stories. So that's great. As long as we keep in mind that uh, we reach everyone and the most vulnerable are not left behind or those without connection. And we keep investing uh, in that. Uh, and yeah, the you can all look up the speakers. Their bios are on the WUFA app. Uh, definitely have a look at them. Uh, also look at their organizations and the wonderful work that they're doing. Uh, feel free to reach out to them. I also encourage everyone to continue networking and discussing and sharing uh, helpful resources, uh, articles, uh, and everything else you would like to share. Um, I'm having a look. The next thing on the agenda, we have a 15 minute break. So you have some time to relax after a lot of discussion and staring at your screen, grab some water, grab a coffee. And uh, at 5 p.m. Brussels time, so depending where you are, this will be a very different time. Uh, there will be a closing plenary session uh, called Innovation Within Government, Rethinking and Modernizing Integration Policy, in which I think a lot of the different themes we have discussed throughout this conference will be all tied back together. Uh, I would again really warmly like to thank our three panelists today and all of you for joining and uh, I'll see you all in the plenary session.